get in Acts 2 with you guys today. Um, just a heads up, there's so many sermons in Acts 2, probably a hundred, and so I'm going to leave out much that could be said. I really felt the Lord leading me to preach on repentance, which of course is the culmination, the call to repent in Peter's sermon. So that's kind of where we're headed today. One day uh, in church, little Alex was in the foyer looking at this large plaque on the wall, and uh, Pastor McGee walks over to him and says, good morning, Alex. And Alex looks up at Pastor McGee and says, who are all these um, names on this plaque? And the pastor said, well, Alex, these are all the people who died in the service. And they look solemnly at the plaque for a second, and then Alex says, which one? The 9 o'clock or the 10.30? (laughs) So if there's ever a sermon in which people didn't die of boredom, it was probably Peter's sermon in Acts 2. And I'm kind of banking on that today, um, especially because I might preach long. And again, if there's any sermon where I can preach long, it's probably Acts 2, right? Right? I think so. Okay. So let me actually, can I get a water bottle? Could someone help me out? Oh, I love it. Oh, thank you, Senior Pastor Bart. Appreciate that. (laughs) As... As the staff know, this is um, my public's. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Two would probably be better. Yeah, these are kind of my public speaking security blanket. It just helps me to have a water bottle. So, yeah, it's there now. Um, okay, well, let me read Acts chapter 2 for us. Turn there with me in your Bibles. And we're going to begin right, like, kind of like I was feeding forward, right in the middle or kind of towards the end of the sermon. So, In Acts 2, verse 32, um, is where we'll begin. By the way, the the Holy Spirit at this point has fallen in power. They're declaring the mighty works of God and the gospel um, in different languages, the languages of all the the tongues that people have gathered together from across the the Greco-Roman world to celebrate the Feast of Weeks um, here in the text, the uh, Pentecost. And that's kind of the scene here. So, uh, verse 32 This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received the word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let me bring verse 38 up again for us. we go. Oh, I lost it. There we go. Um, So again, this is Peter's response. They ask him, what do we need to do? And Peter says, you need to repent. Um, You need to repent. And baptism also is this outward 
uh, and heartfelt demonstration of subjecting yourself to God's call on your life. So I want to kind of let this, this is going to be what we're talking about today. God's basically able to tell us how to live. (laughs) Um, Now, I want to ask the question, could it be that the reason we in our culture today so struggle with the notion of a God who makes moral demands upon us is that we value our self-determination more than our own freedom and our own Um, or we value that freedom more than our own health. We're like this patient who agrees with the doctor's diagnosis of us and how bleak it might be, but we love this broad freedom of lifestyles more than a narrow path of wellness. And I think many of us, and this is, I think, in human nature, we value freedom more than wellness. And it's only at the end of our life and after death that we finally see the bondage that that self-determined lifestyle actually was, although we couldn't see it at the time. Um, There is this idea that we all know well, which is that God does tell us how to live. But what's interesting about that is the notion of God making moral demands upon our lives, um, that's actually uh, obviously clear to us, but it was really novel in the ancient world. In the the world in which the New Testament was written, they didn't think of gods that way. Listen to this quote by Gene Green. Let's see, it looks like it's one behind. Okay. Among the Gentiles, ethics was a subject of philosophy alongside metaphysics and was not connected to one's religious allegiances. But within Judaism, Religion and ethics were intimately intertwined. The pious pagan was not necessarily a moral person, but rather one who faithfully performed the necessary obligations before the gods, as well as family and country. Religion had nothing to do with the morality of the worshipers. Let that sink in for a second. This is a very different world than the one you and I are used to, right? But back then, religion had nothing to do with the morality of the worshipers. Christianity shared with Judaism the conviction that faith in God results in an ethical life subject to God's will. So if you were a worshiper of Zeus, and the religious kind of consciousness of Greek mythology and worship, Zeus could care less how you lived. Zeus could care less how you treated your wife. He could care less how moral you were, how just, loving, merciful. All he cared about was that you told him how awesome he was and gave him sacrifices. And the same with every other god or goddess. So Christians and Jews were bizarre. They worshipped a god who demanded absolute subjugation of their ethical life to his, his will for them, which was weird. I mean, the Christians and Jews would have been really weird and bizarre within that society. Um, we can see this, for example, in um, Homer's The Odyssey. Basically, the lead up to this scene is Odysseus, the protagonist of The Odyssey, is being kept prisoner uh, by Calypso, who is a goddess on her island, who she basically wants to make him her husband. And Odysseus is just desperate to get home to his wife and family. And there's this scene happening on Mount Olympus among the gods, and they're having this conversation. And this is Athena, the the daughter of Zeus, uh, chiding her father 
basically for being apathetic and not helping Odysseus. So she says, you cannot spare him a thought, Olympian. Don't you owe him something for all those sacrifices which he used to offer in their camp on the plain of Troy? Why have you such an odd grudge against him, Zeus? So you see, and I kind of tried to bold, don't you owe him something? That's how worship worked among all the pagan religions is this contract between you and the God that you're worshiping. And the God that you are worshiping had this domain of power. So the God of the sea, that God's domain was the sea. And if you wanted to be blessed with safe travels across the sea, you'd pay a sacrifice to Poseidon or whatever the God of the sea was and whatever religion you were a part of. Or if you wanted to conceive a child, you would worship the fertility goddess or the fertility god because that was their domain to bless you. You gave them what they wanted, which was worship and sacrifice, and they gave you what you wanted, but the gods could care less how you lived, right? And if you gave them what they wanted, then there's a sense in which you were putting them in your debt and they owed you. They owed you to bless you. Our culture seems to have no interest in a God who makes moral demands upon us. And even in the church, we seem to have traded the true God for an idol of him that looks much more like Zeus than the God of the Bible. Now, you may think that you would love worshiping a God who is indifferent about how morally you behaved, how loving, merciful, just you happen to be. That might sound pretty awesome. All you have to do is give him like things he, he, or he wants, and then he just blesses you. Like That's got to be pretty sweet, and he's not, getting, he's not invasive in your moral life. But I promise you don't want that. You don't want a God who is just unmoved totally by the cruel way you were treated at work. You don't want a God who could care less how much you neglect your spouse as long as you tell him how awesome he is. You don't want a God who doesn't care about widows and orphans or sex trafficking or the pride of your heart, who is just in this you scratch my back, I scratch your back kind of relationship with you. And if you do want that, then let me kindly and humbly say to you, I doubt you've met Jesus. Um, Because... To meet Jesus, or in Acts chapter 2 terms, to meet him as Lord and as Messiah is to come into this relationship where he has total say over your life. He is your Lord. He can tell you how to live, and it's actually good news for your benefit. Um, And that, as we saw in Acts 2.38, remains an acknowledgement of sin, an acknowledgement of a need for forgiveness of sin, a desperate need for a Messiah, a desperate need for a Lord. If we don't have a Lord, we're not okay, is the point of Acts chapter 2, right? Um, and to be, receive baptism and this baptismal belovedness, to then live the rest of your life as Jesus' student. And if you want this kind of contract, I doubt you've met Jesus. And I, I want to say that with, with humility, but I think it's true. University of Virginia sociologist James uh, Davison uh, Hunter, who's written extensively on social theory and culture, um, he is famous for popularizing the term culture wars. He said this, Character is dead. Attempts to revive it will yield little. Its time has passed. And if that's not cheery enough, he goes on. 
We want a renewal of character in our day, but we don't really know what we ask for. To have a renewal of character is to have a renewal of a creedal order that constrains, limits, binds, obligates, and compels. This price is too high for us to pay as a culture. We want character, but without unyielding conviction. We want strong morality, but without the emotional burden of guilt and shame. We want virtue, but without particular moral justifications that invariably offend. We want good without having to name evil. We want decency without the authority to insist on it. We want moral community without any limitations to personal freedom. In short, we want what we cannot possibly have on the terms we want it. That's the moment we're in. And as Peter declares in this text, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. This is the reckoning of whether Jesus is actually who he says he is. And it has deep and profound implications for our lives. Um, for the past 400 years in these kind of post-enlightenment um, Western nations that we live in now, we've basically heard this messaging for several hundred years now, which is have the courage to think for yourself, right? Use your reason. And let's shed the baggage of all these antiquated ideas we got from mom and dad and age-old institutions and religion. Have the courage to use your reason and think for yourself. Don't just be a coward who just accepts what you've been told, right? That's kind of the inheritance of the Enlightenment more or less. I feel like we're at a point now where I want to say, have the courage to submit to something, right? I mean, have the courage to have a Lord other than yourself. That's really a courageous act in this moment. Now, I'm not talking about um, mindless submission. I'm all for creating safe spaces where people can ask questions, express their doubts, be skeptical if they have to be, because I am sometimes. Um, and I think that's good. Have different opinions and push back on social norms that are evil. If you know anything about me, you know that I'm a big fan of that. But let's be honest. All of that is par for the course in our culture. You want to talk about a courageous act. It's to say something like, I'm not equipped to invent myself. Right? Because that's basically what we're being told. Just go ahead and invent yourself, right? To be able to say to yourself and others, I'm not equipped to invent myself, as I'm being told. Which, by the way, is every Disney movie for the past 20 years. And every Disney movie for the next 20 years. I'm going to go and prophesy that right now. Mark my words. That is the plot for the next 20 years of Disney movies. Invent yourself, little girl. So, you know, we live in this time where we're encouraged to, to do it yourself. Uh, my friend Ben says, I can do all things through YouTube who strengthens me. Right? And, and that's great when you're a plumber and you're fixing a faucet. Uh, which you don't need YouTube, I'm sure, now, but there was a day. And then that's fine when you're watching a video on that. It's a different thing when you're basically constructing your own worldview, more or less, on your own preferences that week, right? Which is where we are now. 
Because no one has the courage to submit to anything. No one wants a Lord beyond themselves. And this is part of what I think Peter's getting at in this sermon. He's, you know, he's, he is addressing worldview. Um, when he says, repent and be baptized, save yourselves from this crooked generation, Acts 2, verse 40. He's talking about a shift in worldview around the Messiah who just defeated death, is seated at the right hand of God at this very moment, and I'd like to encourage you to do business with this statement. What do you think about that? Because it's going to shift how we live in this world. Save yourselves, Peter says. Save yourselves from this crooked generation in verse 40. Maybe you squirmed a little bit when you heard that. I don't know. Maybe it sounded too much like works righteousness to you or something like that. Um, I want to remind us of a helpful truth Dallas Willard, I think, expressed well. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. I hear an articulation of the gospel more and more by certain preachers these days that basically present the gospel as antagonistic to any kind of human effort at all. That if we preach effort, that means we're, we're demeaning grace, right? So we have to, essentially, if we're going to preach grace, we have to poo-poo effort. As if God really doesn't care about human effort at all. And it, what has always been true, Old to New Testament, is that grace, the grace of God in your life, is not opposed to you trying to not be polluted by a crooked generation. Amen? It's opposed to you earning your way to God, not to you exerting effort. Exert effort, Peter is saying to this crowd. Don't be polluted by it. And Pentecost reminds us that we're never alone in this. We have the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, which is for you, who you are the far off, quote unquote, um, that Peter's talking about. You're the far off for whom it was for he was thinking of you when he said this. Now, sadly, security blanket time. Sadly, the call for repentance at, at this time has more or less been redefined by liberal and conservative dreams for society. Um, and that's really the only way in which we hear a call to repentance. We got to save America from the radical right. We got to save America from the radical left. We got to save America from the radically radical radicals, wherever they may be, which is essentially not me, the person who believes fairly differently than I do. Everyone's fighting for the soul of America. That's kind of the metaphor that we're, we're hearing. Let me just give you all a little break in the midst of this fairly intense sermon and read to you some metaphors and similes. These are from um, high school papers. So buckle up. Um, trying to, I'm sure their teacher said, you have to use a metaphor or a simile. Long separated by cruel fate, the star-crossed lovers raced across the grassy field toward each other like two freight trains, one having left Cleveland at 6.36 p.m. traveling at a speed of 5, 55 miles per hour and the other from Topeka at 4.19 p.m. at a speed of 35 miles per hour. Just like every math problem from high school, Right? He was as tall as a six-foot, three-inch tree. 
poetry. Her date was pleasant enough, but she knew that if her life was a movie, this guy would be buried in the credits as something like second tall man. So let's come back to this, our metaphor. That was just to help us through. we got to fight for the soul of America, right? In our time, the salvation of souls has been almost entirely, at least in public discourse, co-opted by the saving of a nation, the saving of America, or maybe the saving of a company, right? Got to save the soul of that company or save the soul of the institution, but not individual souls. In fact, I noticed that in election season, Donald Trump and Joe Biden both argued that they were fighting to save the soul of America from the policies of their opponent. And that's fine. That's fine. The metaphor's fine. But I find it a, the fact that it's trending so much a little ironic, given the fact that it's popular at a time in which Americans are forgetting they have souls. In Acts 2, Peter isn't preaching to the soul of Jerusalem. He isn't preaching to the soul of Pontus or the soul of Cyrene or the soul of Cappadocia or the soul of Arabia or any other province that was represented in verses 9 to 11 in chapter 2 at Pentecost. He's preaching to 3,000 people, 3,000 souls, verse 41. In fact, the phrase translated save yourself in verse 40, when translated literally, is save your souls. Walter Rauschenbusch, uh, which is a mouthful for sure. Uh, Walter Rauschenbusch was a, uh, a Christian pastor, theologian of the kind of late 19th, early, early 20th century. He's one of two main uh, thought leaders behind the social gospel. And if you've heard of the social gospel, it's basically the idea that... Uh, we, as conservative Christians, for too long have just made sin only about the sin of an individual soul, and we are blinded by that emphasis to see institutional and societal sins. Um, and because of that, we need to focus on the systemic evils of a nation and of a culture and of a society, which is a fair enough critique. Uh, I, well, we, could, we should probably own that. But what Rauschenbusch and others did is they made salvation about the salvation of societies rather than the salvation of a soul. And he denied the atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross as atoning for individual sin and made everything about basically social activism. And that's how we stay relevant um, in this world. Now, Rauschen Bush was you know, a pastor in Hell's Kitchen, New York City, which is kind of gentrified now, but for most of the t- uh, for many, many, many years, Hell's Kitchen was just this poverty-stricken area of New York City, and he was the only. I mean, he was tired of of doing funerals for children, and he was the only one in the city preaching against just the harsh child labor um, and the desperate need for child labor laws in a time when conservative pastors were all too silent on the issue. And I think we can own these moments, right, as as evangelicals that it was not mostly conservative evangelical pastors marching with even Dr. Martin Luther King in the 60s. It was more oftentimes progressive Christians. And so we can, I think we can own those moments uh, where we fail to see the sin of the moment. But here's the great tragedy and the pattern we see over and over and over again. 
with progressive liberal Christianity. And by liberal, I don't mean politically, I mean theologically. Like Jesus isn't the son of God, you don't need a personal savior. Is it has no staying power. Even the poster boy of the social gospel, within a few decades, his church declined and died. It became a gay nightclub in New York City in which orgies were performed on the altar. And today it's a performing arts studio in New York City. And that is a case study what happens over and over and over again. We can talk about society. We can talk about all these things. They're important and good. But the, the moment you take the need for a personal Lord, a personal Savior, the salvation of a personal soul out of the equation, a church has signed their death sentence. They might have a few decades at best. Even the founder of the movement bore that out. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And Peter calls him in verse 38 to repent. Now in the Bible, the words for repentance, we have in the Old Testament, the word for repentance is shuv. And shuv means to return or to turn around, to withdraw, to retire, Basically, it means to course correct. You were going one way, you realize the outcomes I'm getting are not what I want, I'm going to go a different way. That's repentance in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, which was written in Greek, uh, repentance is a bit more uh, conceptual. So it's the word metanoia, which means a change of mind, a shift of thinking in your, your thought patterns. Um, Frederick Denker, who is a uh, New Testament scholar said, metanoia, again, repentance, is a serious change of mind and heart about a previous point of view or a course of behavior. Which is why when Peter tells them, repent, these people from all across the empire, he's actually saying, you need a shift in worldview around the Messiah who just conquered death. It's both about worldview and your living and your behavior. Um, in a, in a recent sermon, Pastor John Mark Comer talked about this story that's written about um, by a New Zealand Maori Christian author named uh, Jay Ruka. In, in this story, he, he opens talking about this time before Europeans arrived in New Zealand. And it's so powerful. Let me read it. Let me share it with you. Basically, the story opens um, before James Cook, the uh, explorer arrived in New Zealand in 1769. There was this famous Maori, the Maori are the indigenous people, this famous Maori prophet who has a vision. And in this vision, he sees people with white skin coming to the island on these large ships and with this message. And he goes around to the tribes um, acting out what he saw in his vision. And so he, he takes a basket and puts it on his head to mimic a hat. He cuts a robe and wraps it around each of his legs to mimic pants. He, he takes a stick and, put, and glues a rock to it to mimic a pipe. And then he goes to the villages with this message in his mouth to them. The name of their God will be Tom E. Worktukia, son of a son who was killed, a good God, however, the people will still be oppressed. That's the message he brings. A few years before James Cook arrives. Now, amazingly, um, so 
that he, James Cook, he comes, he leaves, he was not a Christian. Um, and essentially, 48 years pass before the first Western missionaries arrive on New Zealand's soil to preach the gospel. And the tribal leaders have, I mean, the tribes have literally been waiting decades to hear about the son who was killed, prophesied by one of their own prophets. And so the, the tribal leaders gather large numbers of people on this beach to hear the message of the gospel from um, a missionary preaching at the first time on Christmas Day, 1814, preach the gospel, and the response was incredible to the gospel. Um, it spread rapidly through Maori culture and society. They, they renamed the beach where they heard the gospel uh, the gateway for the good news and the missionaries translated the Gospel of Luke into their language. And then they just spread it everywhere. Incredibly, almost every place that European missionaries arrived in the next, over the next years, they found the Gospel beat them there. I mean, they, the Maori had just run across their island with the Gospel of Luke in hand, telling people about Jesus. And listen to this. One of their tribal chieftains said this. It was only after the word of God was preached that the evil of the deeds and life of olden times was seen, that these were condemned, murdering, family quarrels, seduction, and cannibalism. But the gospel being preached caused the evils of the Mari to cease. They were a very violent people. Um, just this kind of blood vengeance was part of their culture. If you killed my my brother, I'm going to kill your brother. If you raided my tribe, we're going to raid your tribe. Just this back and forth. And they were largely cannibalistic. And that's their testimony. We were, we were crooked. But then the gospel came. And it was wonderful. Is <laughs> basically what they're saying. Repentance is a wonderful thing. As the Maori discovered. Um, they didn't hear the message of the gospel and think, and, and the call to, to live for Jesus and think, what a legalistic, moralizing message these people have. No, it was freedom. It was freedom for them. Philippians 2, uh, 14 on says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, the gospel. And incidentally, it's the same uh, Greek words for twisted or crooked in generation as in Acts 2, verse 40. The Greek word is scolios, where we get the word scoliosis. And the call is to not be bent. There's a straight way, and it's God's way, and only God's way. And he has the right to make moral demands upon us. But as the Maori discovered, it's a good thing. We need his moral demands. We need to live the way he's calling us to live. You know, what's interesting is you can actually repent of anything, technically. You can turn around from anything. You can say, oh, I don't like how this is going. I'm going to live differently, right? And I can repent of a sedentary lifestyle and take up yoga. I could repent of gossip. I could repent of buying clothes made in sweatshops. I could repent of buying cars beneath a particular fuel emission standard or whatever it may be, right? 
Uh, You can repent of anything. Listen to this. The prophet Hosea said, They repent, again, return. They repent, but not upward. In the context here, basically, Judah is realizing, okay, we're dissatisfied with the outcomes we're getting based on our actions, so we've got to make a change. We've got to do something different to get different outcomes. But in context, the one who they're returning to and turning to, repenting towards, is Assyria. So they're saying, okay, we're not getting what we need in our own strength, so we've got to find strength in another source. They repented, but not upwards, the prophet saying. And I feel like this is so much the call of our lives. You know, it's, I, I, let me, I, I want to try to say this without like undercutting my own preaching. <laughs> um, I, I'm all about pursuing a healthy, holistic lifestyle. I've preached on that here at Fullness, and I promise you I'll preach on it again. But it's possible to hear sermons on holistic living, on the body being, your body being a temple of the Holy Spirit, on embracing the gift of limits, on emotional and psychological health, and decide to, to make good choices in your life, but not repent upwards, to make lifestyle shifts and changes that are good and positive and awesome, but not repenting upward, which is an age-old failure of humanity as Hosea is declaring, that God would be the source of your strength and the reason why you do all that you do. That it would somehow be connected to deciding to go gluten-free if you need to. And I know that sounds like a joke, but I actually don't mean it as one. (laughs) That we would pursue everything with him as our reason. Um... A few months ago, in, it was in a kind of January, February, March, um, one more step. I had this season for a few months there where I just, I, I felt God all the time. Um, I would go to bed just feeling his affection for me. I'd wake up knowing I'm unbelievably loved. I'd go throughout my day and just commune with him, prayer was easy. Like I, at the drop of a hat, I could just go there. And then at some time in April, God left me. And I was really disoriented by it. And I, I was just was so frustrating. And um, I spent like months in this place of just like frustrated with God about it. And last week I was doing the dishes and I was in prayer. Well, Ironically, I was, well, I wasn't yet. I was doing the dishes, and I was thinking about how much God had abandoned me. Um, And it actually hit me for the first time, really. Like, for the past months, I've just been wishing that things were like they were. I've just been wishing that I had this communion again. I haven't actually been talking to God about it, which was like this really humiliating realization. Um, and so I did. I was like, okay, Lord, like, I've just spent literally, like, April till August just wishing I had what I had a few months ago and just wishing things were like they were in March. And I was like, okay, Lord, I'm going to come back to you. I put Adeline down for bed, and then I, I get in bed, and I decide to grab the Charles Spurgeon daily devotion on my bedside table, 
which I don't normally read. Um, and I open it up to August 11th, because that's what, that was the day. And, and the, the devotional uh, t- uh, title is, Oh, That I Were As In Past Months. <laughs> and it goes on to say, um, you know, are you sitting there just wishing you had this incredible, sweet communion and precious prayer that you had just a few months ago? Yeah. And are, are you just, you know, wishing you had this again? Um, and, and he basically lists several things that he's like, I don't know, this could be what, if, what happened. Of course, much more eloquent than that, if you know Spurgeon. Um, I do not know, for therefore it could have been these, these things in thine's life. Um, and the first was basically, have you maybe neglected the prayer closet, which I had. Ha- have you set up some idols in your life and stolen the, that affection away from the Lord, which I had. But what really touched me was the very end, and he basically said, stop wishing that things were different. Actually seek the Lord. A month ago, I had this dream, and I dreamed all night about a hummingbird. And I woke up, and I was like, that was weird. I dreamed about a hummingbird all night. I got my coffee and my my cereal, and I went out to my garden. I'm just sitting in my garden. And this hummingbird flies through the trees and stops five feet in front of me and hovers at in front of me for several seconds. <laughs> and, um, and so and then it flew away. And I was like, that's really weird, Lord. Okay. Um, I just dreamed all night about a hummingbird. And I look up hummingbirds on Google. And besides being really tiny, the most interesting thing about hummingbirds, if you know, is they're the only birds that can fly backward. God has, now you may say, Gabriel, I need more than hummingbirds. I'm sure you do. Um, God has his way of calling me to come back to him. God has his way of calling me to return, to turn around, to course correct. And he has his way of doing that in your life. The journey of faith is to discover the ways God calls you to return to him, to come back to him, to be able to say, my mindset has not been on the kingdom. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know what you think of. I know I'm preaching long, y'all. I'm almost done. I don't know what you think of when you hear the word repent, when you hear the word repentance. Um, I have a really positive view of repentance. And I don't say that to puff me up. I actually think I, I really got that from my mom. My mom raised me, and from an early age, she, she always said to me, Gabriel, Repentance is a sign of maturity, of spiritual maturity. And that a delay in repentance is a sign of spiritual immaturity. That if you're quick to repent, and that's a sign that basically you have a, a healthy view of God, that he's not this vindictive, angry one who wants to crush you, and that you actually see it as a gift to come back into deeper communion again. So I have, just, I have a really positive view of repentance in my own life. I don't, maybe you don't. I don't know, maybe when you hear the word repent or repentance, you have like an image of an angry preacher or something just judging you. I don't know. But I'd like to see you rescued from that, like the Maori people, like the people in Acts 2, that this is a gift. This is a call into wholeness and wellness and communion to be able to say, my mindset hasn't been on the kingdom of God. And the word we have for a shift in thinking and setting your mind back on the ways of God is the word repentance. 
That's why I love it. I'm so glad I don't serve a God who's indifferent about my morality. I'm so glad that I don't serve an egotistical God like Zeus. I'm so glad that Jesus was raised from the dead. Aren't you? Amen, aren't you? And, and as Peter says, come on, y'all. It is Pentecost. Um, he says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord in Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. For certain. Now, if you're like me, you know, that certainty in your life that Jesus is Lord in Christ, that might ebb and flow in your life like it does in mine. But I can tell you that certainty is nourished by living into a life of repentance, saying, yes, Lord, your way is better. Setting your mind back on the things of the kingdom. I can tell you that certainty is nourished by living into your baptismal identity as the beloved of God and as a student of Christ. And, and by the way, if you haven't been baptized, then we would love to baptize you. So, so let us know if you haven't been. And I can also tell you that that certainty is nourished by walking in the promise of the Father, the gift of the Holy Spirit, who is for you, those who are far off that Peter was talking about. He says in verse 32 again, this Jesus God raised up of that we are all witnesses. And, and in context, the we here is the 120 who are eyewitnesses to the, the physical resurrected Jesus. I am not an eyewitness in that strict sense um, to the resurrected Lord, like they were. But then Peter isn't saying, we're the only ones who've seen something. He's saying, you guys have seen something too. Well, what is it that they've seen? It says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured, he's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, Right? Talk about the move and the power of the Spirit. That's why it's so important that we remember the witness that we have. Maybe I, Gabriel Hughes, haven't seen the physically resurrected Lord with my own eyes. And I, my guess is you haven't either. If you have, please tell me about it. That's amazing. I really want to know. Um, but that doesn't mean we're without a witness. And um, he goes on. Oh, sorry. I can't go to the last slide. Could you do that for me, Mary Jo? Uh, in Acts 5, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witness to these, to these things. And again, in this case, the apostles. Um, but so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. There is someone who saw the resurrected Jesus who didn't die in the first century A.D., and that's the Holy Spirit. He's the abiding eyewitness to the resurrection, and he's yours. He's the gift of God to you, the promise of the Father to you. And so I, I kind of want to end on that note of certainty. Um, I don't know where you're at right now in your faith level, but I can tell you this, that as you forsake a life of regular confession and repentance, as you live outside your baptismal belovedness and as you don't walk in the Holy Spirit and walk in your flesh, 
that certainty will decline and eventually die. And I can basically promise you that. But as we continue to set our minds back on his way, living in our baptismal belovedness and walking in the spirit, that certainty is nourished and grows and thrives. With that, let me invite the team up as we transition to offering and announcements.